Welcome back to Kava the Podcast. I'm Kelly Archibald, and I want to thank you for tuning in. We live in a crazy world, so we made this podcast to shine some hope into your life. Our guests have lived through some incredible things, both good and bad, and they want to share their stories with you. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. If you've been inspired or encouraged by these stories, please consider supporting us on Patreon or contacting us about sponsorship opportunities. You can find more information about us at kavahpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. Life is full of problems, and most people find a way to accept that fact in their lives. But today's guest, Jarl Jensen, can hardly ever let a problem go unsolved. And we would play something called the invention game. Mm. And the idea was to take this object uh, and figure out what either what it was for or what it could be used for. And we would take turns going back and forth, coming up with an idea for it. He has gone toe-to-toe with all kinds of life challenges, whether small or enormous. His problem solving started when he was a young boy growing up in Denmark. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Copenhagen, uh, in uh, sort of the, like one of the outer boroughs of Copenhagen. Uh, my father was an uh, engineer, uh, educated in Columbia University in New York. Okay. Went back to Denmark and got some, uh, um, some business going there, building machines back in the you know, early 70s. And, um, yeah, that was, you know, that's what we were doing there. Wow. So what is Copenhagen like? I mean, Copenhagen, as they say, is pretty wonderful. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's an amazing town in that it is, um, it just has some, it's very peaceful. It's very, uh quaint uh you can bike anywhere i mean there's probably more people on bikes than people in cars oh, wow. you can walk everywhere it's very it's very much built for the people uh and uh so you know the the social engineering uh mm. going into the infrastructure of denmark is just uh you know it's tops in the world wow so what language did you speak there english oh Okay. And I guess you still speak it, huh? I do. I okay. do speak it, read it. Uh, writing's more difficult, but now when you have Google Translate, that's not a problem either. <laughs> it's helpful, isn't it? Very Absolutely. Helpful. It's amazing. Yes. So who was in your family growing up? Well, I have my older sister, an older brother. My sister's about six years older. My brother's three years older and my father and mother and... Uh, yeah, I mean, we live. I lived my. Uh, well, I was actually born here in New Jersey, and then I moved to Denmark when I was about six months old. We and uh, my first ten years were spent there, and then we moved back over here as my father got a business opportunity in the states. Okay, so do you have any favorite childhood memories? Um. Well, sure. I mean, uh, we went skiing, lots of skiing trips to uh, in, in Europe. Uh, I, you know, remember those fondly. I remember uh, driving the bus, not, not me driving the bus, but taking a public uh, bus from school, uh, uh, you know, probably, you know, 10 miles away alone. And I was, I was like, I don't know, first grade. 
Oh, wow. At six years old. And when I think about that trip that I would make every day alone because my my brother and sister didn't go with me because they they hung out with their friends. Uh, Today, I find it daunting. It's something you would never allow a kid to do today. But I did it every day when I was like six years old. I think, you know, first grade. Wow. That's it. But it was probably a pretty safe area, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I still think Denmark's one of the safest places. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Jarl had an inspiring role model right there in his household as he grew up. His father blazed a trail of inventing solutions to problems. He taught Jarl to think outside the box all the time, no matter how ordinary or impossible a situation seemed. My, my father was also a, a big, big-time inventor, and... Uh, when we, when I was back in Denmark, he used to go into this old garage. Now, this is back in the 70s. And um, there's an old garage on the property. And he would go in there and find, like, some old you know, piece of metal or something in there. And we would play something called the invention game. Mm. And the idea was to take this object uh, and figure out what either what it was for or what it could be used for. And we would take turns going back and forth, coming up with an idea for it. And obviously it would have to be a good enough, you know, it'd have to pay past mustard or whatever. It'd have right. to be, you know, good enough. And uh, that's sort of, I think, sort of set, me on this path for just loving to work with ideas and um, just being, uh, as you said, motivated uh, to um, make things work mm-hmm. uh, and, and making things better, being a problem solver. All, all those things are very uh, sort of um, uh, inspirational and, and uh, aspiring for me. But when Jarl was only 10 years old, he faced his first big life challenge, moving across the Atlantic Ocean. He had been born in the United States, but it couldn't be more unfamiliar. He had only lived there for the first six months of his life. So all he knew was Denmark. Now that was about to be taken from him. So um, then you moved back to the United States when you were 10. Is that right? Yeah, 10 years old. And not speaking English at that point. (gasps) What was that like? Um, Not not bad. I mean... uh... I guess I got here about yeah about ten in the summertime. So there was and in Denmark we don't have the three months of uh, vacation like they do over here. So I sat and watched a lot of TV. So by the time school started, <laughs> uh, I was at the you know at the some of the the frameworks of the language anyway, just from watching cartoons and and that's the other thing in Denmark uh, back then. Uh, there was uh, four or five hours of TV a day on one channel, and that was it. So when I came over to America with, uh, you know, 20 channels and cartoons on all day, it was, uh, you know, it was unbelievable. So you learned English. And what grade were you in when you went to school that fall? I was in third grade. Third grade. Okay. Was it very different at school? I mean, at first it was very intimidating not being able to, uh, you know, communicate with the other kids. Um, and not knowing anybody, uh, the food was, you know, something I'd never seen before. Right. That's one, that's my first memory from the, uh, school in America was, uh, getting like a macaroni, uh, <laughs> like a mayonnaise macaroni salad, a subway sub. Yes. And, uh, I, I was just like, what in the world did they just give me? And, <laughs> 
I, I just threw it out. That, oh my goodness. That was my, that was my first meal in the cafeteria. I just threw it out. I was like, I'm not eating this. Oh my goodness. So but, what did you, what did you, you know, eat? It's then? a quick transition when you're young. Yeah. What kind of food did you eat before? Oh, in Denmark? Uh-huh. You know, for lunch, I, I, I say this to everybody um, that uh, can go to Denmark, and that is uh, the best lunch in the world is in Denmark. And it's called, uh, it's called, um, well, it's, I'll, I'll describe it because it wouldn't do you any good to hear, hear what it's called in Danish. But so it's basically pumpernickel bread with butter. And, um, and it's just made very, very fancy with uh, different meats and dressing. So it's this sort of, so it's a very delicatessen. And this mm-hmm. is, uh, and there's, you can have it with uh, like a fiskefile, which is like a, a fish uh-huh. with a ranelad, and you can have it with uh, like a psychedelin like with um, with um, like a, a, a red cabbage, or mm-hmm. I mean, so there's tons of different combinations, and it's just uh, again, I, I believe it's the best lunch in the world. How funny! And yeah, it's very different from macaroni. Yeah, and mayonnaise yeah, and that kind of thing. Compl- never seen anything like that. Yes, yes, I understand. I don't mind it today. Okay, good. <laughs> so, um, so you grew up from third grade on in New Jersey, is that right? Yes, uh, right here in Bergen County. Oh, awesome. Um, so after you grew up, what did you do? Well, I mean, first I went to college. Okay. Uh, I took engineering. That runs in my family. Everybody's an engineer in yes. my family. Your dad. Um, Who else? I know your dad. Um, my dad, my uncle, my brother, uh, oh, wow. my father, uh, now my uh, brother's uh, first son, Dylan, is now taking engineering. Wow. Uh, and my cousin, Perry, he's an engineer. So it's just, um, I don't know, I guess it's something wow. we like to do. I, I, I'm, now that I've uh, had the education for many years, I, I do believe that uh, engineering is, is the most useful education mm. uh, because um, it's like a, it's a, it's a way to utilize uh, what you know, science teaches us. And obviously mm. that's truly useful. Whereas other things, I don't know. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, where did you go to college? I went to Boston university. Okay. I was a, uh, a rower as well on the Charles oh. river every morning, sometimes 4am. Yes. And, uh, so I got a lot of, uh, they, they called it character building, you know, yes. getting up 4am every morning. Yes. That's awesome. So did you do that your whole college experience? Uh, three out of four years I okay. was on the crew team. I, I did take a year off um, just to try it because, you know, you when you're on a, a sports team in college, you didn't go, you, know, you don't go on spring break. You don't try any right. of those college things. And, uh, and also, I mean, when you get up at four in the morning, you're not going out drinking at one in the morning. No. So <laughs> didn't get, so I wanted to try that part of college life as well. So I did take, uh, I think my junior year, I did not uh, do crew, but I did do a senior year as well. Jarl always pushed himself harder than most and achieved at a high level. But as it turns out, he was motivated by a surprising insecurity that many of us secretly share. Well, I mean, uh, I, for for whatever reason, um, growing up was, and I, I guess most people feel that way, but for some reason, everybody feels that theirs may be worse than others, but I felt very self-conscious, um, very sort of um, 
uncomfortable in in crowds talking to others mm. uh, in, in different situations um and uh that that sort of uh, followed me into college through college just always thinking other people were smarter better than me and mm. and i guess that sort of motivated me to because i felt so inferior it motivated me to uh you know get the schoolwork done and, and, and work hard on things because I just didn't feel like I could, you know, it's good enough right. for anything. So, um, uh, yeah. So in, in this, in terms of, you know, moments that, uh, sort of made a difference, um, that sense, you know, that sense of having to do something to prove myself mm-hmm. that, um, just kind of, you know, nowadays I'm like, well, I, I don't think like that anymore. I don't, right. you know, um, but that was a, a sort of a, a something haunting me all through my whole childhood and early adulthood. This motivation snapped in two when he was faced with the hardest problem he would ever have to solve, the death of his father. Uh, when when my, my father passed away, mm. um, uh, he had just purchased a company uh, for a lot of money, and uh, it wasn't a functioning company it was sort of patents and uh, the rights to manufacture these wound care dressings mm. and um it was a transaction that just took place and, and he you know he got to, he, he became sick with leukemia and passed oh. away and we were sort of you know my mom's kind of stuck with um these patents and this uh i guess you could call it an opportunity but if that didn't work out it was um you know her financial future was definitely at risk and um so we had he had bought this um old uh, build old uh i would call it old factory that was under foreclosure it's basically the roof was a sieve with water coming in and um um, and it was it was a very much like a Genghis Khan moment where we had all of this money invested and we had, you know, we couldn't produce anything. We had drawings of machines. And uh, as a family, um, you know, one of the things we did was uh, we had my father's painting, a portrait made, and it was very nicely done. And we hung it up in this basically old abandoned building and uh the motivation to uh you know see this company into uh, reality and all those sibling problems all those familial mm. problems they all disappeared and and for me uh although i was I, I i don't know if i slept for a full year but uh i certainly became you know overweight and you know acne just just was not taking care of myself just so worried about this uh, problem but um but it for me that was a moment where i learned about purpose and mm. um and, uh, and um and how important it is to to have this common purpose in a team or a family or whatever in order to get past uh rough spots or disagreements where you just say well all of those things don't matter. What matters is it works, right? That we get it to work. And, um, and, uh, as I guess all of those things that I had to, uh, make happen, fixing up the factory, putting in a clean room, building the machines, um, all of those things that had to happen 
did happen. And wow. I don't know, for me, it was sort of like, okay, maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe we can do some things. Okay. You know, I, I guess it gave me a little bit of confidence, but it, it um, I don't know, for me, it, it, that was just a life changing uh, time for me. Yeah. So um, were you out of college when this happened? Yeah, I was 26. Okay. Um, I was definitely, um, I did have some experience with this uh, wound care technology. I'd helped formulate the adhesive for it. I'd uh, sort of been a lab tech mm. uh, for some of the technology. We wind up uh, building machines for and all this. Uh, so I did have experience uh, with it. Um, uh, but I would also say when my, my, my well, when my dead father decided to purchase this, uh, these patents and the, the, this um, opportunity from a, uh, um, from a, a large a medical device company, he, uh, I mean, that's when I said, well, I better help out here. But then mm-hmm. again, he, he became sick and, uh, but there's, I mean, there's so many stories in there all over the place of all these things that had to happen in order for it all to work out. Wow. Um, quite, quite remarkable, really. Wow. But it did work out. Yes. It worked out pretty, pretty well. So did you help um, orchestrate it working out? Yeah, no, I, I was basically the uh, general contractor for the uh, construction of the building, uh, you know, uh, put on a new roof, put in a... Uh, ISO uh, 100,000 clean room. We built packaging machines with a laminator to make the wound uh, care dressings. Uh, we got the mixing operations up and running. We uh, ISO cert- certification, uh, quality certifications. Uh, we hired, um, we wound up having with 120 employees over, you know, the next uh, um, 15 years. Um, so, um, yeah, I was... Uh, I wound up being a CEO, but I was also in the initial phase, I was the R and D manager and I came out with, uh, um, over the counter wound care dressings, uh, professional wound care dressings, um, uh, probably, you know, probably about 10 patents or more. Wow. Also all, all of these uh, new patents and these, the processing for the machine. And then we wound up building more machines, um, wow. hired engineers and, PhDs and we had a whole um, R&D facility. Uh, so just a, a whole lot uh, took place in a, in a very short period of time. Wow. Um, so yeah, did you a, did you know that you could do all of that before you did it? No, no, but that, that's the why it was like a Genghis Khan moment. Yeah. When the, well, I don't know if you what, what I mean by that is uh, Genghis Khan used to bring the, the soldiers' uh, wives and children to war because and that's why the soldiers wouldn't be like well maybe we don't want to fight today they're like well, we're going to fight the enemy or your yeah. kids are going to get it uh, that's yeah. very much like it that's how yeah. it felt it really felt like we didn't have a right. choice right we had to make it work or you know it's like uh it would be a very difficult life ahead for us so right. uh, that that's that's uh, what it felt like i think that's what it was i mean it certainly was the the vehicle for my success that mm-hmm. i've you know most of the success i've experienced in my life um so yeah it, it, it really was that and uh, that was our reality that's the way we looked wow. at it wow Jarl was able to solve this problem by simply putting one foot in front of the other His motivation was powerful but simple. 
He had been left with no other option than to succeed. So succeed he did. And he didn't stop there. Jarl took his inventive spirit and used it to help his family. So what, uh, what is your life like today? Well, today I have uh, three kids, uh, twin boys and a daughter. I have, uh, I'm, I'm married now for 14 years. And, Congratulations. Um, I am in a building that uh, I own half of. I'm on the top floor, and here I do uh, basically my company, Inventagon. We do a medical device uh, research and development, um, and I have projects in both um, orthodontics. We're working on uh, some exciting new uh, aligners uh, for teeth and also uh, some acceleration uh, moving teeth faster technology. Oh, wow. And um, I am also working because uh, my, my mom uh, got arthritis, uh, severe arthritis. And uh, the, the doctor said, well, you, you're going to have to get a new knee. And she's 80 years old. And I said, uh, well, hold on. If it's a, a, a traumatic surgery like that is the survival rate for, for elderly people right. is not very good. It's like there's a 15 to 20% chance of dying. So, you know, and I was just shocked that they wow. really didn't offer much of sort of preventative, uh, even advice, like, you know, go to a spa, you know, get a massage. Right. None, right. Of, none of these things were offered. It was just, uh, it's time for you to get a new need. It's like, it's like a business process. Um, so that was, I was like, well, what, why don't we try, you know? So basically I, I just built her a spa and, um, it works so well. Her, her, uh, she's got full movement back in her fingers. I don't know wow. if you've ever seen um, rheumatoid arthritis where the hands get all messed up. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So she's got, she wants to start playing tennis again and the knee, and she doesn't complain about the knee anymore. She used to complain. She used to come into my office and say, my pinky. She wanted, she wanted to cut off her pinky. So, you know, look like a little whale. All of all, she has no pain anymore. Wow. And, um, and I'm thinking, you know, if, if this is the best, uh, the whatever mainstream healthcare system we can do is tell people to get new body parts. Right. <laughs> at, at very high risk. Um, you know, I, it, it amazes me. So um, that, that's another, I made, I made it into a project. My, my uh, intention is to, uh, build uh, an advanced spa with advanced sort of health technologies that, um, and if you, if you know anything about um, chronic diseases, they're all related to the same thing, which is, um, well, it's, it, they're all lifestyle diseases and people just aren't getting enough stimulation of their systems in order to be healthy mm -hmm. because they're, you know, indoors all day. They're not getting enough light. Uh, uh, obviously diet is a problem, but I don't believe it's the main problem. Mm -hmm. They're just basically, uh, our bodies are not being stimulated uh, to be healthy. Mm -hmm. So I'm working on these, uh, basically it's going to be like an advanced spa where your body gets stimulated into health. Oh, wow. Uh, so, uh, it's basically like a next level gym where the gym only works out your muscles. This facility works out every part of your body in about, well, depending on how, you know, you, how much you want to do, but only about 15 minutes. Oh, wow. So you did this with your mom and it worked. Well, yes. Yes. I mean, she, she was, she basically 
because I wanted to help her and, you know, I'm a sort of idea person. I, I love reading these, all these uh, science journals. Basically, I just figured out that uh, stimulation is the key to uh, health. And I mean, we can talk about genetics, but genetics, the, the, the understanding what genetics is has changed quite a bit. Genetics is, is more of a reflection mm. than it is a code. So in other words, if the genes aren't stimulated, then the genes don't do anything. They'll just sit there. Mm. And, and that's what's happening when, with aging, that the, the genes just sit there because they're not being stimulated. So basically, I just created a, a, a stimulation <laughs> spa. Wow. So what's included in your spa? Well, uh, well there's light therapy. Okay. There is uh, vibration therapy. Uh, there is... Um, I would call it water therapy, mm-hmm. and uh, it all takes place in. Uh, you get a you get a private room, and you get uh, a special uh, light stimulation, vibration stimulation, uh, and you get all of these things in a basically a, a ten foot by fifteen foot room. And I'm gonna have I'm gonna have ten rooms with uh, these different uh, stimulation. Um, uh, with, with, with these uh, systems in place, mm-hmm. and so you you get you you know basically get the room for half an hour or, or whatever, and there's obviously you can change your clothes, you can you know do whatever you need to do. It's it's basically your room, so you're renting the room, and you get to access to all these uh, different ways of stimulating your uh, system. Oh wow, that's so clever! I like that. So, what would you like people to take away from your story? Um, well, I, I do think that, like you said, that uh, every situation has a the appropriate um, um, purpose that's needed in order to get past it. Um, and um, I think problems are solvable. Um, mm. I, I do in, in that in that vein, though, I am very challenged at this time in my life. Uh, because uh, when my kids were born, I was very um, concerned with their future. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I think the world is very strange. I used to think that uh, it was all about society's efficiency to, you know, like I used to think, oh, if I can cut the cost for making these wound care dressings, that's going to make the world better. But I since I've learned a little bit and I see that there's, there's systemic problems in our society. There are certain problems that don't go away. Certain problems are getting worse. And most of all, it's this sort of inability to solve society's worst problems. And I, that, that to me, is something that obviously, as, as you, the story I've told you, that in, in my, is not something that sits well with me in my nature. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I had an idea, surprise, surprise, about what the problem <laughs> is and what needs to happen. And well, with a big societal uh, idea, it's it's not something you can just you know turn into a product. This is there's a system, systematic problem in society. And so I, I started writing books, and I have now written uh, five books about this specific topic. And um, and I'm trying to get the word out about this, and that is that we have a, um, a financial system, a money system that is dysfunctional. Um, we, have, we have basically conquered the natural world 
with science and engineering over the last hundred years. We've turned the Model T, the Henry Ford's Model T, into a Tesla in a hundred years. But as a society, we've been stuck. We we can't seem to solve poverty. Mm. We can't seem to uh, figure out why we have to keep going to war. We can't seem to figure out why our healthcare system and why forty percent of the population of chronic diseases and why sixty percent are obese. We have so many societal problems and we have no answers Mm. and the simple reason is is that there's one part only one part of our society that engineers can improve upon and that is the financial system how you know what do you mean there's engineers making you know um electronic payments and transfers possible there's software coders but that's not the part of the financial system i'm talking about and so what the part of the system that engineers aren't allowed to play around in is it's the federal reserve and central banks around the world there are monetary policies in place that prevent the appropriate development and evolution of our financial system and that is what's holding us back my message to people is is that as long as we allow the banking system to control the creation of money we will always have these problems and they will never go away once you let engineers control the creation of money then all of a sudden we can solve all of these problems and actually very easily see um uh, there's this principle in, in, in engineering, right, that um, that you can um, – there's a point of leverage. Like if you have a, a, a lever long enough and a fulcrum, you can move the world, right? Right. Um, so it, the fulcrum in society is money creation. And the reason that is is because – you you can leverage money to create work right so today the only reason why we create money is for the purpose of banks making loans so in other words the only way we get money into society is through loans well this is a terrible engineering decision right because what you're saying is that you're only allowed to use one variable in order to affect work and that is credit you have to have a loan you have to make it or take out a loan in order to get money uh, and then that money is used to create work but from an engineering perspective this is a terrible idea it's like trying to get a car to drive effectively with only um you know increasing or decreasing gasoline there's a thousand other variables required to make a car run properly well the same is true for our economy and our society we need more inputs into our economy in order to create a functional society uh and it's literally that simple but because the federal reserve is made up of member banks Mm -hmm. that own the federal reserve right right in other words we don't even get to vote on how and why the Federal Reserve does what it does. It's an independent, privately owned corporation. And this is terrible. And that same principle through the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944 was passed throughout the world. So all countries around the world use the same banking system uh, to control their countries. And what does that mean? That means that socialism, uh, capitalism, it's all the same. It's actually all bankism. Banks are actually really running our economies because if you, without money, right, there is no economy. And banks determine when money is produced 
to create work. Mm -hmm. So that also means when we're voting for Biden or Trump, we're not voting for a party that even considers what the Federal Reserve is and what it does and what it means in our lives. So in other words, there really wasn't a big difference between Trump and Biden. And you and, uh, you know how strong people's opinions was about that. <laughs> but there was actually no difference because both parties, even the Green Party, you could have voted for a third party or independent party. It doesn't matter. All of the parties support the banking system controlling our economy. If people don't wake up to this, there's nothing we can do of significance about global warming, right? There's nothing we can do about global uh, all the wars happening around the world. Uh, now, you, you have to dig a little deeper into this to understand this. Perhaps read my books. Right. But if, if you understand how important and how useful money creation can be for society if it was deployed for the purpose of making people's lives better, I wrote a book. It's called Optimizing America for people right mm. today we are optimizing our economy for banks mm. so banks can make as many loans as possible and so if you take that in extent take that a little bit further what that means is the reason why we work our entire lives the reason for our whole society culture everything we do it all adds up for one reason only so banks can make loans that's a terrible reason to exist yes so do you cover this in your book that's coming out in March? Absolutely, 100%. Okay. Okay. And I do it with simple language, no statistics, no, no economic uh, wonkish jargon, very okay. simple. Well, I mean, it is sophisticated writing, <laughs> but it isn't complicated. I try to use simple analogies, simple storytelling, so people can get the idea of how it works. And I, I chose to go this direction because... This is a battle between the people and the banking system. Mm. The banking system is literally financing government, so it's going to be very hard to get our elected politicians to do what we say or even listen to this idea. But if people understand that they have to work their entire lives right. and have trouble retiring you know, in a, in a decent way, um, they, if they, people understood that a wild tribesman in you know the outback in Australia or in the in the rainforest of Brazil are only working 15 to 20 hours a week and they're doing just fine. They probably have less health problems than we do. They definitely do actually. Yeah. Uh, so you can see that there's something very wrong with a society that advances without a cause where people are forced to work two, three jobs uh, a day for, you know, 40, 60, 80 hours and they still have trouble feeding their kids. Mm -hmm. There's something very wrong right. um, with uh, society. What? Why is what's pushing this? And why are do we have these strange metrics for how well we're doing? Gross domestic product growth, right? That what that really means is that we're busy doing stuff. It doesn't actually mean we're getting healthier because we know we're not getting healthier. Um, all of these things that are going wrong with society can be tied back to this idea that money should only be used for banks' purposes. Mm. This is actually a terrible idea, and it's why we've made no progress as a society over the last 100 years. Mm. So the name of your book is The Big Solution. Yes. Because you have solved that problem for us in your book, right? I have solved the problem. <laughs> Jarl's life has been marked by creativity, 
and ingenuity. Before hearing his story, many people might have looked at him and decided that he was simply born brilliant. But Jarl Jensen's life has required a lot more than brains. It has required bravery, and each time a problem has arisen, he has met it face to face. Thanks again for listening to Kava the Podcast. It's our joy to share these stories of hope in a confusing world. To keep up with our guests and adventures in podcasting, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would also love it if you gave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. It helps us continue to share hope around the world. We are so grateful for our listeners who financially support Kava the Podcast. If you would like to become a supporter, please consider donating via Patreon or contacting us about sponsorship opportunities. You can find more information at kavahpodcast.com. That's Q-A-V-A-H podcast.com. I would like to thank my head writer, Rebecca Gray, and audio engineer, Meredith Douglas. I could not do this without you. You make this happen, and I can't express my gratitude. Maybe you've been listening because you found yourself in a desperate place. We want you to know that all is not lost. It is our desire that you would be able to borrow hope from those who've gone before you, those who've waited to find a positive outcome. Please be sure and connect with us via our website or social media. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.